Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. ...to us. You want to reveal truth to us, Lord? You want to wash us with your word? You want to renew our minds? Lord, you want to clean our dirty feet? I pray that we would have the humility to put them out and to allow you to, to do so, Lord. I thank you that uh, that when we are weak, our weakness is, is where your strength is perfected, your power is perfected, Lord. And I pray that that would be true tonight. So I ask that you would speak to us, Lord, and you would teach us about how to live righteously for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's been a few weeks since we've been uh, together, probably a month or so since we were in the book of Ephesians. And, uh, and tonight we're going to pick up right where we left off. We're going to look at verses 25 through 32, uh, the end of the chapter there in chapter 4. But before we, want to get in, before we get into those verses, I want to remind us of a couple of things. The first thing I want to remind us of is that uh, the book of Ephesians is what's called a universal letter. Uh, the book starts out, Paul writes, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's the way our Bibles read it. But if you're to look at some of the ancient manuscripts, uh, it doesn't say Ephesus. There's a blank there. And the hypothesis is, is that it was what was called a circular letter, that it would have been delivered probably to Ephesus, and then it would have made its way around the churches in Asia Minor. So you read the book of Revelation and the seven churches. Uh, this letter probably would have gone to each one of them. It's also interesting that in this letter, it's probably the only letter that Paul wrote to a church that isn't addressing any kind of specific uh, problems or uh, things going on in that church. Uh, so, so this makes it very applicable to us. It makes us very uh, interesting and, and, and very... Uh, yeah, applicable, where we could read it and, and apply it straight for us. It's written and relevant for every believer today. And our passage tonight is no exception. Uh, also, I wanted to point out that I, I've said this a few times, that the kind of a rough outline or a loose outline of the book of Ephesians is this. In chapters 1 through 3, we have what's called the believer's wealth. Right? In these three, first three chapters, Paul is talking all about who God is, what God's done for us, what God's revealed to us, all the wealth, all the, the resources that belong to the believers. In chapters 4 and 5, it's about the believer's walk. He is getting into the details, and, and he's telling believers how to walk. And in light of who God is, and in light of what God has done, and what God has revealed to us, how should we live? What should our life look like? And then in chapter 6, he gets into the warfare of the believer. Paul's going to introduce us to the unseen evil forces in the world and how they're trying to alter and disrupt our walks with Christ. And in chapter 6, he's going to give us specific instructions on how to deal with these demonic forces and have victory over them. But tonight we find ourselves in the section of the epistle concerned with the believer's walk with the Lord. In fact, the chapter began, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Uh, in this chapter, we've talked about the believers uh, in the unity in the church. We've talked about how Christ is 
going to provide everything that his bride, his church needs to be successful. And last time we were together, we we're talking about our new life in Christ and, and what our new life in Christ looks like. And he started out by contrasting it with our old life, what life was like as a, a non-believer. In chapters or verses 17 and 18, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. He's saying at one time we were ignorant, we were Gentiles, we were excluded from the life of God. And then in verse 20, he says, You did not learn Christ this way. And then in verses 22 through 24, he's exhorting the believers. He says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted uh, in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and in truth. Now this putting off of the old and putting on of the new was something that happened at conversion. The moment that we believed, we were changed. In an absolute sense, we were given a new identity, a new set of clothes. We look completely different. However, we must, in our daily lives, give ourselves over, give our will over to these changes and allow them to practically become a part of who we are. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 2.12 that we are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work both within us, or at work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Right? We have a part. We're to work it out. God planted this salvation inside of us. He now looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ. But we're to, to grow in sanctification to the point where not just he could see it. Other people could start to to see this salvation coming out of us. They could see that we've been changed. They could see that we are wearing new clothes. And now Paul's going to continue this thought that we're talking about in the section that we're looking at tonight. However, he's going to go from talking about the difference of our old nature and our new nature in a theological sense to talking about it in a very practical sense. He's going to go from speaking in vague theological speak to very personal and very practical details of what this new life should look like. I've entitled our passage tonight, Dressed for Righteousness, because I believe our passage, uh, Paul is going to get very specific about what it should look like and when we put this new self on, what these new clothes should look like and uh, what our, our righteous self should look like. Remember in the Bible, it talks about clothing speaking of character, speaking of a, 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 a person's behavior. And so tonight we're going to see what righteous character or righteous behavior really looks like. But let's go ahead and read the passage. In verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, 
but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, before we start breaking this down verse by verse, there's three really overarching truths that I want to point out uh, that I, I believe that it's going to help us get to the heart, get to the point of what Paul and the Holy Spirit are trying to convey to us tonight. And the first overarching truth I want us to see is righteousness is expressed in community. So fill in the word community. If we look at these exhortations that Paul gave us, the five, maybe six of them, I have six, but there's really five. Um, we're going to see that each one of these happens in the context of community. It happened in relation to other people, other believers. You see, righteousness is right living or treating each other rightly, which can only happen when we're in relationship with other people. It's actually impossible to live righteously by yourself. The only way you're going to be able to live righteously is if we have other people in our lives. You know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, the first tablet, if you will, it has to do with the believer's relationship with God. It has to do with godliness. The second six, or the second tablet, they have to do with believers' relationship with each other. It has to do with righteousness. And both are important. Both godliness and righteousness are important. But we see that you can't actually achieve righteousness without being around other people. So if we're going to grow in our righteousness, we need to change the way that we view and act in community. Number two, it's not enough to stop doing evil. Righteousness demands that we do what is right. So fill in evil and right. Again, if we look at each one of these exhortations as we will, there isn't just a prohibition, but also a command to do what is right. For instance, in chapter 5, he's going to say, uh, stop getting drunk for that's dissipation. Right? You could, you could stop getting drunk all you want. There's people that do stop getting drunk. That doesn't make them right with God, right? And he says, no, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So it's not just enough to, to stop doing the bad thing. You, you need to add the right thing. I remember there was this comedian, I think it was Dave Chappelle, and he had this act about this guy, this dad, who's like, I'm a good dad, you know, I don't beat my kid. And he's like, you're not supposed to beat your kid. You know, that, that doesn't make you a good dad. That just makes you not a bad dad. And it's kind of the same thing. If we want to be righteous, we need to stop doing what's wrong, but also start doing what's right. You know, when we think of Jesus's ministry, we tend to think of his suffering and his sacrificial death, uh, which purchased our forgiveness. And we should remember this. This is important. However, I think there's a part of his ministry that we overlook, and that was his perfect life. His, his 30 plus years of living perfectly and, and, and living in perfect relationship, perfect righteousness with other people. And, and, and you see, both are important. Because if Jesus would have just came and died for our sins, 
Yeah, our sins would have been forgiven, but we wouldn't have been able to go to heaven. Because it, it, there's a standard for heaven, and that standard is perfect righteousness. It's not just the absence of sin. Remember, Jesus says this. He said, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And sin, because you didn't believe in me. In righteousness, because I ascend to the Father. And in judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see, right there, he said what the, the standard is to go into heaven, to, to go into God's presence in his perfect righteousness. Now, I, I thank God that when we're in Christ, that his perfect righteousness is in, imputed to us, and, and that's how we're able to stand before God. You know, God, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. You know, th that is true. But God also wants to work on our righteousness. Yeah, he sees us in, in the lens of Christ's perfect righteousness, but he wants us to grow in righteousness in that mean time. Yeah, I have Christ's perfect righteousness in a sense, yet I still have the old me. Personally, or positionally, I'm perfect, but practically I'm far from it. I need to pursue Christ's righteousness in my daily living, and I need to have a relationship with people that resemble the way that Jesus treated people. That's what righteous living is. Number three, our behavior is based on God's righteous character and nature. So fill in the word God's. In almost every single one of these exhortations that we're going to see, it's all about to give, or exhortations all is about to give, he, Paul is going to give us a, a reason for why we should make this a priority. Paul's going to say, you know, don't do this and do this, and here is why. And each one of those, it has to do with uh, theologic, something that God has revealed in his word, a theological truth, something about who God is. And, and for instance, he says that we should be truth tellers because we believe in the doctrine of the church. We should have the right kind of anger because the devil is a real being. We should forgive, or, or we should... Uh, Forget stealing uh, because we believe in honest work, stewardship, and caring for the poor. We should give up filthy and rotten speech because it displeases, even grieves the Holy Spirit. We should forgive because it's an evidence that we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. You see, so each one of these, there is a theological reason that Paul is saying this. I love what this pastor says. He says, do you see this? Our practice and our theology are tied together. Christians should not only live differently from unbelievers, but they should also live differently for different reasons. We believe in God, sin, the devil, the spirit, the church, Christ's death on the cross. These truths should affect the way that we live. So now we can move on to these specific exhortations. Each one of them could be a sermon series in and of themselves. We could go on preaching on these subjects for days and days and days. There's so much to say from the Bible from each one of them. However, I don't think that was Paul and the Holy Spirit's intention when they wrote this. So I'm going to attempt to get through them rather quickly, but we're going to move on, right? So the six illustrations of what righteousness looks like in the new man. Number one, the new man stops lying and he tells the truth. 
the new man stops lying and tells the truth. Look at verse 24 or 25, I'm sorry. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speaking truth, each one of you to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Believers should speak the truth. Lying should be incompatible with the Christian. To lie. You know, lying was the first sin God used or judged the early church for. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they were struck dead. God had to judge them, judge the early church because of lying. In Exodus 20, verse 16, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Right? We need to tell the truth. You get into the book of Revelation, and at the end of the Revelation, in chapters 21 and 22, it's talking about the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. And in two different places, it says that, that liars will not be in the new Jerusalem. In chapter 22, verse 15, it says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. If you love and practice lying, if that's a pattern, if that's part of your life, you're not going to be in heaven. You're going to go to hell. That's what the scriptures teach. So we need to be careful about the way that we talk. Lying has no part in the Christian's life. In Hebrews 6.17, it says it's impossible for God to lie. Right? It's, it's completely incompatible with God's character. Paul says in Romans 2.4, let every man be found a uh, let God be true and every man be found a liar. Right? God is, is gonna be true, and he wants that to be true of our nature as well. Ephesians 4.21, last week or last time we were here, we saw this. It says, just as in the truth is in Jesus. So God can't lie. Uh, let God be found true. Jesus, the truth is in him. He is the truth, the way, and the life. In John chapter 18, he's talking to Pilate, and Pilate's asking him questions in that, and he said, uh, he asked, Pilate asked him, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you said correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He's testifying. He's saying, I am truth. My voice is truth. Everybody that knows the truth hears my voice and understands it. Before he uh, got arrested. His last prayer, his high priestly prayer, he prays that the Father would sanctify us in truth, saying, thy word is truth. He gave us the spirit of truth to lead us into all truth. We're called to be like Jesus. He said, it's enough for a disciple to become like his master. If Jesus is the embodiment of truth, we should do our best to tell the truth as well. But the truth is, is we live in a society that doesn't value the truth. We live in a society that is built upon lies. Everybody lies. Politicians lie. Uh, doctors lie. Cops lie. Teachers lie. Pastors lie. Well, some of them do. 
um, everybody lies. It's just the way our society is built. And it's just, we have lies that just kind of keep us going. If we stop lying, I don't think our society would be able to continue. It's just so ingrained to what we do. I remember I was at this little boy's birthday party uh, probably a couple of years ago. I think he was turning eight. And I'm sitting there and I'm eating my pizza with him and another little boy. And they're having this talk about uh, the virtues of lying. They're going on and on about how it's good to lie in certain situations. That everyone lies. That we should lie to avoid hurting someone's feelings. We should lie to avoid getting in trouble. We should lie to make things more convenient. And it went on and on about how, when, and why lying is such a good thing. You see, it comes natural. They say by the time a child is two, they know how to lie. By the time they're four, they're convincing at it. It's just part of who we are. It's part of what our society is. You know, it's uh, our society is being ran by the prince of the power of the air, and, and, and he's a liar. You see, it just comes natural to us. I looked up some statistics about lying. You know, over 60% of Americans can't go 10 minutes without telling one lie. The average American claims they tell about 11 lies per week. I think they're lying there. Um, 70% of liars claim that they're glad that they lied even after they got caught and that they'll do it again. You see, there's many ways that people lie. One of the ways people lie is just through exaggeration. Right? We like to do that. We exaggerate stories. I heard this story about this guy, and he got saved, and he had just this radical testimony. And he went all over churches, all over the United States, preaching at churches, telling his testimony over and over and over again. And finally, he comes to this church to speak, and he's talking to the pastor, and the pastor's like, so, you're going to tell us your testimony? And he's like, no, I don't do my testimony anymore. I, I stopped sharing my testimony. And the guy's like, why? And he's like, because I've exaggerated it so much every time, I, I don't remember how much of it is actually true. We need to be careful that we don't get into that where we're exaggerating the truth. There's also lies of omission. Right? We're just leaving a detail out. We can tell everything we say is true, but we leave out the important detail. You know, well, that's a lie as well. Or the lies of silence, where we know the truth. We should share the truth. We don't speak up about the truth because we're afraid of the consequences. You see, when we lie, the scriptures tell us that we're demonstrating that we're not only unsaved, but that we belong to the devil. That's what Jesus said in John 8, 44. He says, you are of the father, your devil, and you do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I'm not saying that if you tell a lie or you slip up or that, that you're of the devil and, and you're not saved, you know, um, you need to repent of it and get back on the right track. But if that's the pattern of your life, if you could just continually lie and exaggerate the truth, then, then that might be the case of you. It's interesting when we look at Paul's reason for telling the truth. right? He says we should tell the truth because we're members of one another. 
We're, we're of the same body. Can you imagine if my mind started lying to me? Imagine if I stuck my hand under hot water and my mind was telling me it was cold. I would end up getting seriously hurt. Or if my eyes started lying to me. Imagine I'm driving home and I'm pulling up to a light, or a signal, and my mind's telling me it's a green light when it's really a red light. Or, or I'm driving and, and there's a straight road, or uh, I, my, my eyes are telling me the road's straight when there's actually a turn in the road. It, it's going to be deadly. I could end up killing myself or somebody else or, or really hurting somebody. We are one body in Christ. And when we lie to each other, it causes just the same type of harm. We need to be careful to tell the truth because we are members of one another. Number two, the new man has the right kind of anger. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. That's a quotation of Psalm 4.4. It's interesting. You see Paul's view of the Old Testament. He's affirming it, saying that, you know, there's continuity between the old and the new. But he says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil, an opportunity. Anger isn't always a bad thing. There's a, there's a right kind of anger. We know this because there's times where God is angry. We see God being angry in the Bible. Deuteronomy 9.8, Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. So obviously there's a type of anger that isn't sin because the Lord can display it. You say, oh, that was the Old Testament, though, right? Of course God was angry in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus was angry, too. Remember in John 2, he comes into the, the temple, and he comes into the, the court of the Gentiles, and what does he see happening? He, he sees the bazaars of Annas, the high priest had turned the court of the Gentiles, the one place where Gentiles could come and seek God and try to hear from God into basically a marketplace. You see, the Jews would be traveling to Jerusalem for the feast, and they would have to bring an animal for the sacrifice. And remember, it had to be without spot or without blemish. So the, the priests concocted this type of racket. They said, we'll just have people bring their animal, and we'll say, hey, this one has a spot or a blemish. It's unacceptable. And guess what, though? We got some pre-approved ones over here. And they would sell those ones to the pilgrims, at a steep, steep markup. And then they would just take that one and put it back into the pen and sell it to the next person. It was the perfect racket in their mind, but they didn't know that God saw their hearts, he saw their mind, he saw their intentions, he saw exactly what he was doing, and it angered Jesus. Jesus made a whip, remember, and he went and flipped over the money changers' tables, and he drove everybody out of their temple, displaying righteous indignation. The disciples saw it and remembered Psalm 69, zeal for my house has consumed me. So Jesus displayed righteous indignation. How about in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? It says he entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the weathered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? 
but they kept silent. After looking around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch forth your hand. He stretched it forth and his hand was restored. In Numbers 25, there's this story about the children of Israel falling into idolatry and immorality. The Israelite men started sleeping with the Midianite women, and it grieved the Lord. One guy got so brazen that he didn't just go into the Midianite camp to sleep with the women, but he went and got one of their women and brought him back in broad daylight to his tent to sleep with her. And everybody's standing at the gate, all freaked out and all grieved. And one man, this man named Phineas, he grabbed his spear and he ran into the tent and he took his spear and thrust it through the man and the woman in the very act. Listen to how God responded. Numbers 25, 10 and 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. He actually stayed off the wrath that God wanted to display on the sons of Israel because he had the same jealousy that the Lord had. See, God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for his holiness. And when those things are being disrupted, when those things are being hurt, when those things are being taken advantage of, it produces a righteous anger in the Lord. And it should produce a righteous indignation in us as well, if we share the same heart as the Lord. Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. See, righteous indignation hates sin. It does. It, it, it hates sin. It loves the sinner. It wants, you know, restoration for the sinner, but it absolutely hates sin and the effects that sin cause. So you ask, what's the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? There's so many passages in the Bible that are warning me of anger and telling me not to be angry, and now you're telling me that it's okay to have this righteous anger. How do I know the difference between the two? Well, this is, this is the easiest way. Righteous anger is concerned about God's holiness. We should get angry when people talk in a way that defames God. Unrighteous anger tries to protect self. Its anger arises because I've been offended. I've been hurt. It's okay to be angry when God is getting hurt, when God's holiness is being affected, when God's people are being taken advantage of and there's injustices. That's, that's righteous anger. When it's just because I'm uncomfortable or someone does something to me, that's vengeance. That's, 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 that's not the same thing. Righteous anger sees injustice and grieves over it. Righteous indignation mourns over the sins and the effects of sin in the world. See, we have every right to be angry that our governor is making it easier to kill babies. We should be angry that our government's advocating for the mutilation of children. We should be upset that our president won't defend the border and children are dying from fentanyl overdoses. These things should grieve us. They should make us angry. However, 
We have no right to be angry with the people involved. We don't have a right to be angry with Gavin Newsom. We don't have a right to be angry with Joe Biden. Those aren't our enemies. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We need to direct our enemy at the real target, Satan. Those are just the prisoners of war. Those are the people that Jesus came to die for. Jesus sees them as a sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion for them. His real anger is at the enemy. His anger is at sin and the effects that the sin causes. I'd caution us, though, to examine our anger. Satan would love to deceive us into thinking our unrighteous anger is righteous anger because he could cause so much damage with anger. He really can. He said, said that, danger, that anger is an acid that causes more damage to the vessel it's stored in than that which it was poured on. That is true. If you have anger built up inside of you, it's going to end up hurting you more than anybody else. Listen to what Aristotle said. Anyone could become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, now that's not easy. Paul's going to give us a couple tips to help with, with our anger, though. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this isn't an absolute. Like, if I live in Alaska, that doesn't mean that I could just be angry for six months at a time. No, he's not literally saying, you know, that, you know, you got to do it before the sun goes down. No, he's saying that you need to deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester. Don't let it linger. Deal with it. Make it right. Because if not, a word of bitterness is going to come up inside of you. You know, talking to couples, I tell them to deal with their anger, deal with their their animosity, deal with their conflict before they go to bed. If not, you're literally going to be going to bed with the devil. He then says, don't give an opportunity to the devil. Remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights? At the end of that temptation, it says that Satan departed and he sought an opportune time to tempt Jesus. When we hang on to our anger, we're creating an opportune time for Satan to come and work in our lives to hurt us. It literally says, don't give space for the devil in the Greek. Remember that parable that Jesus told about when the, the unclean spirit is cast out of the man, it goes around looking for another place to go, and, you know, and sep- uh, more evil spirits come looking for a space, and finally it ends up in a worse space than it began with. Well, held on to anger creates spaces for the enemy to take a residence in us and to disrupt our life. We need to learn to deal with our anger in a healthy manner. And one healthy outlet for righteous anger is taking it to God. Have you ever heard of the imprecatory psalms, the imprecatory prayers that David would pray? He would pray these prayers of judgment on people. Now, I I don't know if he really you know, wanted God to do these things. I think he was angry. I think he was zealous for the Lord. And, and he was taking his anger out to the Lord. And, and I think that by the time he left the Lord, he was in a healthier place. But one example of this is Psalm 109, verses 6 through 15. It says, Appoint a wicked man over him 
and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days become few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let their creditor seize all that he has and let the strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. In the following generation, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut them off or cut off their memory from the earth. Seems pretty harsh, right? But it's better to take that anger to the Lord and let it out with the Lord than it is to release it on other people. At least the Lord knows how to deal with it. At least the Lord knows how to deal with us. Hopefully that by the time we're done with the Lord, we'll leave and we'll be in a much better place with him. Our heart will be comforted and at peace. Number three, the new man stops taking and starts giving. Look at verse 28. It says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing in his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. We would expect Paul to say him who steals should get a job so he could provide for him and his family. But that's not what he says. He says he who steals should get a job so that he can give to whoever who has need. This is exactly what Paul's example. He's not asking us to do anything that he wouldn't do. Listen to what he says in Acts 20. In Acts 20, he's with the leaders of Ephesus. He's in Miletus. They're having kind of their elders meeting before he goes to Jerusalem. He says this, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my own deeds and the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed than to give than to receive. Paul's doing full-time ministry. He's planting churches. He's teaching the Bible every day. He's ministering to people. Yet he's finding time to go out and work and to earn money, not just to take care of himself, but to take care of all the guys that are with him, to provide for them so that he doesn't have to be a hardship to the churches. So he could be a blessing to anybody who has need. That's incredible. Listen to how the early church is described in Acts 4, in verses 32 through 37. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonged to him, to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated means son of encouragement, 
who owned attractive land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, I was thinking of this the other day, these verses. And, 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 and this thought came into my mind. It was, imagine if we only have in heaven that which we gave on earth. Imagine if our possessions, would be, would the accumulation of our possessions in heaven were the things that we were willing to give away on earth. Would we have anything in heaven? And Jesus says that we're to store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't, and, and burglars can't destroy them. Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. If we're into covetous, if it's all about stuff and, and that's what our heart's after, we're going to be an anti-idolatry. But if we care about the Lord and his people, stuff won't be that important. So what do you care more about? Do you care more about people or stuff? You know, that was really the older brother's problem, I think, in the parable of the uh, prodigal son in Luke 15. I, I think most people missed this in the beginning of the parable. In verse 11, it says, And he, a man, had two sons. The younger of them came to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the state that falls to me. Here it is. So he divided his wealth between them. See, both sons got their inheritance. And one of them went off and wasted it. Remember, he had prostitutes and riotous living and all of that. And his money ran out. And then once his money ran out, his friends ran out. It's funny how that works. And then a famine came in the land, remember? And he found himself feeding pigs, right? Not a job a Jewish boy should do. And, 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 and this thought came to him. He's like, why am I here doing this? Even my father's servants eat better than I am. They have it better than I do. And so he's going to go back and tell his father, I've sinned against you and heaven and earth and, and all this. He's had it all rehearsed, right? And he's on his way back to tell his father. And the father meets him and runs and grabs him and starts kissing him on the cheek and says, hey, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring some sandals, put it on his feet. He takes a ring and puts it on his finger. So slaughter the fattened calf. We're having a party. But the other brother was mad. He's like, I never got a fatted calf. I've been here doing the right thing the whole time. I think what was going on in the other brother's mind was he already wasted his. That's, that's my robe. That's my sandals. That's my ring. That's my fatted calf. See, he cared more about stuff. He cared more about wealth. He cared more about what he was going to get from his dad than he did his brother. Have you ever truly asked God for a raise or a better job so you could give more? And if you say yes, is your giving matching that now? Reflecting that now? I don't know if I can say that I've done that, but I have been convicted of that the last couple of days. You see, God, he really wants us to be Robin Hood without the stealing part. Like just going around blessing everybody. Just seeing the poor people and trying to make their lives better. That should be the goal of our life. That's what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus had everything. He, he didn't regard 
being in heaven a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took upon the form of a man and a servant at that, and even to the point of death and death on a cross, and did all that so that we could become rich, we could have life. He, he made himself poor so that we could be rich, the Bible says. Number four, the new man replaces rotten speech with gracious and edifying words. Fill in rotten, gracious, and edifying. In verse 29, Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That word unwholesome in the Greek, it's really a word that it literally means rotten. It means rotten. It means bad, unwholesome. It's used to speak of a rotten tree or a bad tree that produces bad fruit. Remember Jesus says that we will know a tree by its fruit. A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree or a rotten tree produces bad fruit or rotten fruit. He uses it in Mark 13, speaking of rotten fish that are thrown away. Now, if you think about it and you take a rotten piece of fruit or a rotten fish and you put it with the rest of the fruit or the rest of the fish, what's going to happen? Everything else is going to start getting rotten, right? Uh, 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 one rotten apple spoils all the other apples. The Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. And the same thing is true for our speech. If we have rotten speech, if a believer uses his mouth for rottenness, it's going to inevitably hurt others. But if we use our words for, in a gracious way, it's going to edify and build others up. You know, our words are actually a reflection of our soul. That's what Jesus said. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If someone's constantly complaining, critical, negative, abusive in speech, sarcastic, a sign that there's a problem in their heart. Conversely, if they are constantly encouraging, exhorting, commending, affirming, it shows that their heart is in the right place. You know, Jesus is the perfect example of someone who uses his words in a gracious way. I got proof of it, Luke 4.22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? They were wondering at the gracious words falling from his lips. Don't you want people to say that about you? Man, that guy's always got gracious words falling from his lips. I think a great example of this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the first one to identify Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was the one that baptized Jesus. Got to see the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. Got to hear God audibly speak from heaven. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, a few years later, John the Baptist gets arrested. And he's sitting in prison. And, and he starts doubting. He starts wondering, hey, is this really the Messiah? Or is there somebody else to come? And so he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus to ask him that. <coughs> and Jesus starts performing all the miracles, all the things that the 
Isaiah said that the Messiah would do and tells them to go back and tell John what they saw, affirming that, that he really is who he said he is. And then he looks at the crowd and he says this, that of all men born of women, John the Baptist is the greatest. Never has there been a man born of women as great as, as John the Baptist. On John the Baptist's lowest day, the, the day that his faith was the worst, where it was waning, where he was doubting in God, was the very day that Jesus said, there's never been a man born of women as great as John the Baptist. That's a gracious word. That's an encouraging word. I'm sure John the Baptist, when he heard that, was like, really? How about Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman? She was a Gentile. Remember Jesus, he, he's, he goes up there in the tire and Sidon and he's hanging out and he's, he's really hiding because it's gotten too hot for him around Galilee. And, and this woman comes to him begging him to heal her daughter and cast the demons out of her daughter. And he says, I've only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not right for the dogs to eat the, the children's bread. He didn't mean anything derogatory by that. But she, she even humbles herself and she says, yeah, but even, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And, and what does Jesus say? He says, hey, go your way. You know, the, the, your faith has made you well. He says, you're a woman of great faith. He says, you have great faith. That was a gracious word. How about Jesus and the centurion? The centurion comes to Jesus and, and, and he wants one of his men healed. And, and Jesus is like, all right, I'll come and I'll heal him. And he's like, no, 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 you, you don't need to come into my house. He's like, only say the word and my man and my son shall be healed. And, and, and you know what Jesus says? He says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. He didn't mean to say that. That was a gracious word. That was a faith-building word. That was an encouraging word. In Jeremiah 15, 19, it says there, this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesperson. If you can extract the precious from the worthless, you could be God's Spoke person. When you look at people, are you looking for things to commend? Are you looking for things to encourage? Are you looking for ways to tell people, hey, you know what, you're doing a good job? We need to look for opportunities to speak gracious words. We need to look for what God's doing in people and affirm it and encourage it. We need to look for characteristics and people that reflect the Lord and, and tell them that they have these. If we do, I, 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 I'm confident that God will use our tongue to impart grace and build people up. Number five, the new man desires to please God and not grieve him. Fill in please and grieve. Look at verse 30. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. For the day of redemption. Right here we see that the Holy Spirit, it's not a force, it's not a power, 
No, the Holy Spirit is a person. He could be grieved, he could be quenched, he could be choked out of the lives of believers. It's interesting, though, because all of these negative uh, uh, all, all these things that Paul is saying, these exhortations, the, the negative side of it, they grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, but he, he, he puts it next to this statement, next to the way that we use our tongue. Right? And I think he did that on purpose. Because it's, it's with our tongue that I think that we grieve the Holy Spirit the most. It's with our tongue that we cause the most disunity. And this is the very thing that the Spirit is trying to create. It's interesting that Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. So this sealing and the redemption refer respectively to the beginning and the end of salvation process. The very second that we are saved, the second we become true believers, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we've been sealed till the day of redemption. This is speaking of the, the day where we are made complete, where we're made to be in glory with Christ, where our salvation is fully complete. So it's, it's accompanying the whole process. And in between these two termini, we have to grow in Christ-likeness and to take care not to grieve the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord, and falsehood and shrinks away from them. Therefore, if we have wished to avoid hurting him, we shall shrink from them too. Every spirit-filled believer desires to bring pleasure, not pain. By the way, this speaking of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, I was thinking about this. I, I was thinking about that and... The Bible says that when Jesus died, he was put in the tomb, remember? And they sealed it with a large stone. And they put soldiers in front of it. And then Pilate put his signet seal on it, saying that if anybody broke that seal, it would mean death to them. But something greater came along and broke that seal. Something greater came along and removed that stone. Something greater came along and knocked those soldiers over. And, and, and emptied that tomb. Well, can I tell you something? There's nothing greater than the Holy Spirit. What God has put to seal you, there's no greater force that's going to come along and, and, and break that seal. There's nothing that's going to be able to get inside of you and take the Holy Spirit out of you and remove salvation from you. Because nothing stronger exists. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Lastly here, the new man replaces fleshly vices for Christ-like virtues, fill in vices and virtues. Verses 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So I ask, what do bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, that's like loud speech, yelling, slander, malice have in common? They're all products of the flesh. 
There are products of our old nature. On the other hand, kindness. First Peter 2.3 says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. The, the, the Lord is kind. Romans 2.4 says, do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? Or how about tenderhearted? Tenderhearted is an interesting word. It's this Greek word, eusplinkos, which means compassionate. It means uh, the, the, the moving of our bowels, our, our inward part. It, it literally means to, to feel the same way as someone else, to hurt for what hurts them, to, to be affected in, in the innermost being for what is affecting somebody else. Can I remind you that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest? That he suffered and been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin? And we could go to him and, and he's going to sympathize with our weaknesses? He, he knows what we've been, what we're feeling, what we're going through, and, and he feels the same way too? Remember the early church. Paul is breathing out threats and, 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 and persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And, and he goes and leaves Jerusalem to go and, uh, to Damascus to go and arrest and persecute other believers. And the Lord appears to him in bright light, knocks him off of his horse. And remember what the Lord says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> what, what? How am I persecuting you? I'm persecuting your disciples. But Jesus identifies with his disciples so much that when his disciples are hurting, he is hurting. And he feels that same way about you and me. How about Matthew 9.36? See in the people he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd. How about forgiveness? Forgiveness is, is who Jesus is. He died while we were yet sinners so that we could have forgiveness. So on one hand, we have the deeds of the flesh, the, the, our old nature. We need to put those off and we need to put on Christ and Christ-like character and start acting like Christ. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we could do that. The same power that was working in Jesus wants to work in us and cause these same characteristics to come to life in us. But I ask, who do we need to forgive? Who is it that you need to forgive today? Is there someone? I read this book by Corey Ten Boone. Uh, she was a, in the Holocaust. She was actually hiding <coughs> Germans or Jews from the Germans. She got caught. She got sent to a, a concentration camp, was there for a while. She actually got out and actually lived in Placentia for a time and went around talking about her time in the Holocaust. And, and she said this, that all of her time working with Holocaust survivors, that she could basically break everybody down into one of two camps. On one hand, there was a group of people who, who just couldn't move past that. They, they weren't able to make anything meaningful of their lives. They were just perpetually hurt, victims, and and, and, and needed to be cared for continually, needed to be taken care of. On the other hand, there was another group 
and they were able to move on. They were able to lead meaningful, productive lives and, 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 and do something with their lives. And she said the one thing that separated those two groups of people was this. It was, it was forgiveness. This one group, the group that was able to have a productive, meaningful life, was able to find a way in themselves to forgive their captors, to forgive the people who tormented them. You see, when we don't forgive, we're just building a prison cell around ourselves. And that is exactly what those people that had to go through the Holocaust did. I'll close with this. You know, we tend to kind of idealize and romanticize the early church. We tend to think that they were perfect and will never live up to what they did. But here in our text, we have proof that members of the early church had problems too. They had people that were stealing, people that were lying, people who were grieving the Holy Spirit, people who had dirty mouths, you know, all, all these problems that we see in the church today. The travesty isn't that these people are in the church. There's always going to be new believers who are going to be immature in their faith. The travesty is when a believer stays in these fleshly categories. You see, God doesn't want us to stay there. Jesus' prayer before being arrested was, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. He wanted us to be sanctified. He wanted us to grow out of this infant stage, to grow out of this fleshly stage, and to put on Christ-like character, and to start becoming and acting like Christ. So let's press into God's word and allow his spirit to sanctify us and change us and our fleshly vices into Christ-like virtues. He will if we will surrender and let him. Amen? So God, we do thank you. I thank you for this word. I thank you that you have showed us what righteous living looks like. I pray that you would speak to us and show us which area each one of us practically needs to work on, whether it's telling the truth or whether it's being more generous or uh, using our mouth to encourage and edify rather than to tear down. I pray that we wouldn't grieve you, Lord, and and I pray that we would grow in our Christ-like character, Lord, but we realize we can't do that without you. We can't do that without your spirit and your word. So we ask that you do what only you could do and help us to do the rest. In Jesus' name.